is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It is good to have you with us. It is Monday. Hope you had a great day at church yesterday. We sure did. I was preaching at Blackfoot Community Bible Church in Ovando yesterday, an uplifting message from Isaiah 6 called Until Cities Are Devastated. It was a good day. Um, had a good time over there. Had lunch with friends after, and uh, and uh, I'm they've they've asked me to come back on the third Sunday next next month. So they have uh, it's a it's a small church. They don't have a a full time pastor, and they they have four elders, and each elder is in charge of one week a month. <laughs> of either preaching or bringing in somebody to preach. And so I have, uh, I I have been tagged a few times now to uh, go preach over there and uh, look forward to next month again. I'll try to do something a little bit more uplifting than uh, a judgment passage. We'll have to see, but, uh, but it was a good day at church. Missed being at Frenchtown, always miss being at my home church when, when I'm away, um, and I think that's the way it ought to be. Um, so that was a that was a it was a good weekend. I'm looking forward to being back home at church next week. But uh, yeah, it's it's nice to have an opportunity to go and preach the word, and I enjoyed that very much. And then today, I get to run over to Kootenai, Idaho, and have lunch with. Jim Osmond and Andrew Rappaport and Josh Comstock. So I'm looking forward to that. Andrew's in town from Pennsylvania. So yeah, it's just a couple hours away. So I'm going to run over and have lunch with those guys. I'll be taking off shortly after I finish the podcast. Um, that'll be fun. Mrs. Squirrel is not going with me. Um, she does not travel well due to migraines, which is why, you know, when I show up at conferences, she is rarely with me. <laughs> Um, that's why, uh, the migraines make it difficult for her to travel even short distances. She, uh, she'd prefer to stay home <laughs> and I understand that. Um, so she will not be going with me and she will not be going with me to G3 in September. Um, I'd love to take her with me, but I understand the health concerns that are, are present. It's just... That's life, right? Life in a fallen world. We have these problems. All right, this is Squirrel Chatter. It is a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian podcast community. You can head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com, check all the uh, check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. <laughs> Get that enunciator working this morning. Um, 
good stuff at the Christian Podcast Community, which is a ministry of Striving for Eternity Ministries. Uh, the president of which I'll be having lunch with today, because that's Andrew Rappaport. All right, what do we got coming up today? We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And then it's Monday, so we got Monday meanderings. So we we got a lot to talk about this morning. Let us begin, as is our practice, with the Prayer of Confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now our reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Today's devotional is entitled Jesus, excuse me, knocking stuff over on my desk. just wanted to pick up my coffee cup. Jesus and Non-Retaliation Property is the title of our devotional today. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 5 Dr. MacArthur writes, Secular people also hold tightly to the concept that property rights are sacred, but such self-centered possessiveness is merely another symptom of humanity's sinfulness. Even believers forget that whatever they have belongs to God and that they are simply stewards of their wealth. We do have certain legal rights in most countries to manage property as we wish, but we must be willing to sacrifice those rights on the altar of Christian obedience and submission. See Romans 12, 1 and 2. Whenever someone wants to borrow something of ours, we ought to willingly allow him or her to do so. That person might well have a genuine need, which only we can meet. The Lord implies here that his disciples should offer to give as soon as they sense a need, not waiting to be asked. And he is not referring to our grudgingly donating, but I, to generously giving, a generous giving that springs from a loving desire to help. Our attitude should be far more than a token charity that merely wants to salve an uneasy conscience. Christ's words do not intend to undercut civil justice, but to destroy human selfishness, which is sin and does not belong in the hearts of true Christians. In truth, the only persons who do not selfishly or vengefully cling to their property rights are those who have died to self. See Galatians 2.20. The faithful believer lives for Christ and, if necessary, surrenders all his or her rights and dies for him. Romans 14.8. Ask yourself, 
Again, since we cannot give away everything we have, how do we deal with the requirement of adhering to this Christian command while also using sound judgment, being good stewards of our God-given resources? And answering that question is key. Otherwise, you would impoverish yourself, you would impoverish your family, which is not being a good steward of what God has given you. So, you know, we are to help other people, but we are to do it wisely. And sometimes the help that um, seems to be the most obvious isn't helpful at all. I think about the the myriad soup kitchens and stuff that, that really arose, and most of them started by churches, mainline denominations, arising out of the social justice movement of the early 20th century. And that has not alleviated the problems of homelessness and stuff. Now, I'm not talking about times like the Great Depression when everybody was out of work and everybody was in horrible need and had no ability to meet their needs on their own. I'm talking about the, the people who won't work. Work's available and they're not willing to do it. Um, I'm not talking about people who can't work. I'm talking about people who won't work. You know, the Bible says, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. So you think about so many of these homeless missions and stuff where they're just enabling these people because they, they're they not requiring them to go and support themselves, those who are able. And so there's a, there's a wisdom there where often the, 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 oh, we've got to feed all these people might not be the the best course of action. Now, again, in a disaster like the Maui fire, you have a lot of people who've lost their homes, lost their businesses. You know, I, I was listening this morning and somebody was talking about the fact that the, um, the, the temperature of the fire was hot enough. Actually, it was Al Mohler this morning on the briefing. He's talking about the temperature of the fire was hot enough that it probably that there are a lot of dead people whose bodies we will never find because they were totally consumed by the flames. So there's going to be, you know, how do we know who died? Where did they die? When did they die? It's going to take a long time. Um, but this is a, you know, a, a natural disaster and you have a bunch of people who can't feed themselves right now because they've lost everything. Um, including loved ones. Yes, we feed those people. That's that's a temporary and immediate need. And, you know, we don't let people starve to death, but there's still a, you know, making people to, you know, people are, are supposed to support themselves. You know, they're not supposed to um, be a burden to others. The, the same scripture that says, give to those who ask of you, also says, don't be a burden to other people. Support yourself working quietly with your hands and, and several other verses of the same stripe. So, you know, there is there needs to be wisdom in how we 
um, offer that aid. All right, it is Monday, so we got Monday meanderings. And I want to talk a little bit about the AI revolution. And what kicked this off was last week. Now, I, I got to be honest. You know, okay, I'm a Windows user primarily. I have a, a MacBook laptop, and I like it. And I use, you know, an iPad. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm not averse to Apple products. But my desktop computer is a Windows computer. My desktop computer has always been a Windows computer. I have been using Microsoft operating systems since the 80s. Yes, going back to MS-DOS. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm... I, I, it's not... I can't even say I'm a fan of the system. It's just it, I know it. So that, you know, I've grown up with Windows. I remember the first Windows. I remember Windows 95. My first machine that I personally owned, actually I still have it, it's out in the shed, was a Windows 95 HP Pavilion. And uh, I bought that in 98. The, the Windows 98 machines were just coming out. And the Windows 95 machine was really cheap because it was cheaper to mark it down and sell it than it was to send it back to Hewlett Packard. So I bought a, a Windows 95 machine in 98. Um, and I did upgrade it to Windows 98, just, you know. But so, you know, I remember, you know, the first Windows. So I've, you know, Windows, I think, what was the big commercial version? I think it was Windows 3.1. I can still see the logo. That was like the big one before Windows 95 came out. And then, of course, Windows 98. And I'm, you know, I'm using Windows 11 right now. And so I've always been a fan of, like I said, fan's not the right side. I've, I've always been a, a user of Microsoft products. Now, back in, I want to say it was... 2013-2014, Microsoft tried to get into the smartphone business, and they were going to, they came up with, a, with an operating system called Windows Phone, and if you remember, Windows 8 was very much integrated into Windows Phone, the desktop is the worst desktop ever. But they, the desktop suddenly looked like the screen of your iPhone, where you just had these huge square blocks, and it, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't as nice as Windows 7. Windows 7 was a fantastic operating system that replaced Windows XP. Windows XP was, uh, in, in a lot of ways, I look back on Windows XP as one of the best operating systems Microsoft ever put out certainly for the time. Um, but it, it, about the time Windows 8 came out, and then they skipped Windows 9 and Windows 10 came out, they were working on the Windows phone. Now, I never had one. Um, I was tempted to, um, but it just, it, it, it never took off. And so the, the Windows Phone idea just never... By, by that time, the market had already been saturated with 
iPhones and Androids, and the Windows Phone didn't find a market. Um, and I don't know, like I said, I never used one. I don't know how well they worked. I know I hated Windows 8. <laughs> Just say that, put that out there. But, um, so the, the, they were coming out with a phone. Now, they wanted to have a voice-activated assistant like iPhone's Siri. And so they came up with their own, and they called it Cortana, based upon the AI that appears in the Microsoft video games Halo. And and I've I love Halo. Halo's a fun game. I've played Halo a lot. So I liked the idea of having Cortana. And Cortana was the the it was voiced by the same voice actress who did Cortana in the video games. So you had access to, you know, you had your own little Cortana. Now, obviously, Cortana was not AI, because this predates AI. It was it was very much a, you know, simple voice-activated, you know, research thing, just like any, you know, Alexa and Siri started out. Now, the thing is that... Um, you know, AI is growing, and so AI is starting to to envelop a lot of the functions of these digital assistants. And Microsoft is working on AI-based digital assistances. Well, they decided recently, but it, I guess it happened in the last week or two, with the last update of Windows 11, Cortana went away. <laughs> now, I, I never used Cortana. I, I had never really set it up so I could talk to my desktop. I, I, I barely use the voice-activated stuff on my phone. I, you know, it's just not something I, I look at very often. Now, Mrs. Squirrel uses it all the time. Whenever she wants to check the weather, whenever I want to check the weather, I open up the weather app and look. <laughs> when she wants to check the weather, she asks Siri. <laughs> so there's, that's the way that works. Um, so personality types. I've, I've never used Cortana. But at the same time, it made me sad that Cortana went away. Probably because of my attachment to the Cortana in the video games. Well, they, they are replacing Cortana with a, a, a new AI digital assistant, I guess is the plan. And, and I haven't, you know, I haven't researched it much at all. I just saw the articles coming across my news feed that Cortana was being done away with. And that got me thinking about this whole AI revolution. There's not that I haven't thought about it before. But I've, I've been watching this, and you have too, as, you know, like things like chat GTP and, and all of these things, and they're starting to, you know, the, the 
digital art where you can tell your computer, you know, tell the AI to, you know, I want a photorealistic picture of a squirrel riding a bicycle. And the computer will generate a photorealistic picture of a squirrel riding a bicycle. And, you know, that's amazing in itself. It's, it, but it, it, there's, you know, apologies to Clint Eastwood, but there's the good and the bad and the ugly involving AI. And so, you know, the good is that it is useful for research and writing. It's, you know, um, there's all sorts of advantages to having an artificially intelligent personal assistant who can look things up and keep track of things for you um, in ways even, you know, because the AI can be anticipatory, you know, like a good secretary who knows what the boss needs before he realizes what he needs so that when he turns to ask her for a pen, she's already holding one out for him. An AI can be anticipatory, whereas straight up computing, you have to tell it what to do. And if you forget to tell it what to do, it will not do it. Whereas with an AI, it'll remember, you know, he didn't tell me to do this, but it's Tuesday and I always do this. I should be ready to do this. You know, the, the AI can be, can anticipate and the AI can, can intelligently do stuff, you know, like sorting through research material where you're looking for something, if you do a keyword search, you get all sorts of stuff that contain that word that might not be the subject you're looking for. AI can filter that and, and help you find the stuff that's actually pertaining to the source, that uh, the, the subject you're looking at. So AI can be very useful. So that's the good. The bad is some of the stuff that people are using AI to do. I have seen the, the, the deep fake videos that they can make and deep fake photographs that can be made now that like, you know, um, I've seen videos of people saying things they never said. And it sounds just like them. Um, I heard of uh, um, people using voice spoofing AI to call up family members to request money. You know, so now it's not even the text message or the, the instant messenger message from somebody whose computer has been hacked. Now you get a phone call. And line spoofing would show you that the phone call is from your Aunt Marjorie. And the voice you hear when you answer the phone sounds like Aunt Marjorie. And she needs your help. And she needs you to wire her some money. That's scary. AI can be used for that. Um, there's other things. Like the digital rewrites. Have you been keeping track of this? Back Early this year, it came out that they were rewriting. Um, now, this was actually human beings going through the books and rewriting them. But the 
Roald Dahl children's books were rewritten to make them seem less offensive. And um, Ian Fleming's James Bond books were being rewritten to make them seem less offensive. And remember, the, the you know, these books were written, you know, a long time ago, and, and, and they contain the attitudes of their times. And quite frankly, Ian Fleming had some racist attitudes, and some of his books, especially Live and Let Die, which took place in, you know, South Florida and the Caribbean, and involved, you know, voodoo, and, you know, Dr. Katanga was the bad guy, and, you know, I'm not talking about the movie, which was excellent, um, but, you know, the bad guy was, you know, a Caribbean black man, and, you know, so there was, there was a lot of discussion of black culture in that book that, by modern standards, is racially insensitive, including the, the use of the N-word. Well, the book was written in the 50s, just you know, know when it was written. Well, they're, they're being rewritten to take all that stuff out because, you know, modern sensibilities obviously can't deal with this. And there's been, I mean, the Huckleberry Finn uses the N-word. Uh, Mark Twain, written in the 1800s. Now, you can't read Huckleberry Finn and tell me it's a racist book because it's not. But the dialogue used common vernacular of the day, you know. And so that was the, you know, that was a word that was used to refer to black people. Um, and and the interesting thing is that, that, that these words were not always used pejoratively. It was not you know, intended to be hateful all the time, you know, sometimes it was just descriptive, you know, the, the, the N word comes from the Latin word for black. If you, if you understand that. So, um, but anyway, you know, so you have these sensibilities from past days, which modern people can't deal with. So we have to rewrite you know, now you can argue about whether or not you think James Bond books are classic. Roald Dahl books certainly are, as are Mark Twain books. Um, you know, the the James Bond books are actually kind of cheap, tawdry spy thrillers. Um, fun, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've been a James Bond fan for many, many years, and I've read all the books. I have paperback copies that were printed in the '70s, so I've got the physical books. But, you know, they're, they're, this desire to rewrite historic material so that it's not offensive to modern sensibilities is, is also starting to take on the AI world. There are digital rewrites of, well, PETA. <laughs> PETA used AI to rewrite Genesis. And you can buy the ebook version for four bucks from PETA. 
I have not bought it because I'm not going to send PETA any money. But they have rewritten Genesis to show more respect to animals. Give me some examples. At the time of the birth of Isaac, Abraham and Sarah also adopt a dog named Herbie. Herbie. That's a classic Hebrew name. Then in Genesis 22, the, the greatest picture of the gospel in the Old Testament, at least in Genesis, where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. They get up, he prepares the sacrifice, and God stops him from sacrificing Isaac and provides a ram, which Abraham and Isaac then sacrifice in the place of Isaac, this picture of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Instead of sacrificing a ram in Genesis 22, in Peter's version, Abraham befriends a lamb. So, of course, totally removes the uh, uh, whole um, gospel message, but that shouldn't be surprised, right? But they used AI to rewrite this. Um, the PETA president, Ingrid Newkirk, said, The Bible has long been used to justify all forms of oppression, so we've used a chat GPT to make it clear that a loving God would never endorse exploitation of or cruelty to animals. It took God only six days to create the entire world, but we realized it would take us years to rewrite the whole Bible, which is why we've started with just the first book. So they are rewriting the Bible to make it more sensitive to animals using AI. That's changing it. AI's also been used to create it out of whole cloth. AI was used to create a fake biblical passage about Jesus accepting trans people. Uh, this transgender person wrote, I was feeling sad today, so I asked ChatGTP to write a fake biblical passage about Jesus accepting trans people. This is what it said. And a woman whose heart was divided between spirit and body came before him. In quiet despair, she asked, Lord, I come to you estranged, for my spirit and body are not one. How shall I hope to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus looked upon her with kindness, replying, My child, blessed are those who strive for unity within themselves, for they shall know the deepest truths of my Father's creation. Be not afraid, for in the kingdom of God there is no man nor woman, as all are one in spirit. The gates of my Father's kingdom will open for those who love and are loved, for God looks upon the body, not the heart. Folks, that's blasphemy. It's also idolatry. That's a, you know, do not add to the words of this book. <laughs> it's pretty clear in, uh, and would apply to both of those cases. So this is, you know, this is the bad that AI can be used for. 
Um, it's the I've, I've talked about this before. It's the fallenness factor. Any technology developed by man can be used for good, but it also has a fallenness factor. Any technology devised by man, no matter how good the purpose for which it was devised, will be used for sinful purposes. Um, you know, use the example of metallurgy. You know, steel makes a better plowshare. Steel also makes a better sword. Robots allow, you know, manufacturing and, and work to be done in environments that are too dangerous for humans or faster with better precision than humans can do it. That's a, you know, robotic manufacturing is a good thing. But those same, that same computer and robot technology can make a drone that can drop a bomb down a two-foot air shaft from 40,000 feet. Yeah. So, you know, there's a fallenness factor in all of it. And that's what we're seeing here with AI. There are good purposes, as I said, but there is this fallenness factor where it, this technology, any technology developed by man, will be used for evil purposes. And so we're seeing that the, the AI being used for these evil purposes. You can have this rewritten Bible by PETA or by some LGBTQ group to support their ideology, whether it be equal rights for animals or whether it be, you know, sexual perversion. They can come up with their own versions that do that. But there's also the idea of coming up with a whole new religion created by AI. A whole new Bible for a whole new religion. Futurist I'm not, Yuval Noah Harari, who is uh, affiliated with the World Economic Forum, he's a university professor, he's a futurist, you know, one of these guys who tries to think up how the world ought to be, or what's going to happen, you know. He is promoting the idea that AI will be able to generate a new globally acceptable religious book, espousing a new globally acceptable unified one world religion. Oh, this is sounding familiar, isn't it? He wrote this. In a few years, there might be religions that are actually correct. Just think about a religion whose holy book is written by an AI. That could be a reality in a few years. <laughs> a, a new religion with an AI-generated book. And as I said, as more and more information is stored digitally, those who control the digital world can change that information. And we've seen the growing centralized control of the Internet. Totalitarians hate freedom. <laughs> and the desire to control information is strong in 
the evil world system. And so you see, you know, the, the, we, we've seen the canceling of unpopular opinions, even if they turned out later to be true, you know, there's no apology. Um, I keep thinking about the, you know, the lab leak theory when COVID started and spring of 2020, we were, the first thing we heard was, you know, this happened in Wuhan. There's a virology lab in Wuhan. It had to have come from the lab. Oh, no, 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 we were told. No, no, no. This happened because people were eating bats. That's how it came about. And that was the story that got pushed. And anybody who said, you know, this looks like it might have come from that virology lab was canceled, to use the vernacular. Their, their social media accounts were shut down. They were not allowed to communicate. And, you know, we've, we've seen the Twitter files and the Facebook files where we know that the United States government was contacting social media companies and saying, shut those people up. The control of information, which they did. Now we know, yeah, it came from the lab. Well, we knew that then, but we weren't allowed to talk about it. So as more and more information is stored digitally, the same people who try to control the news are trying to control history and religion. We looked at the novels that have been rewritten. You know, how long before the powers that be decide that for our own good, the only Bibles that will be allowed are these new and improved rewritten versions that support animal rights and LGBTQ rights and who knows what else. Divine right of kings, you know. You know. What, what do they decide that? See, this is the thing. You think about the, the Raw Dahl books that have been rewritten. If you have those books on your Kindle, guess what? It's already been changed. Because they can go into your Kindle and update it with the newer version of the book. And you don't even know about it. Yeah. Now, you may have a downloaded file that they haven't changed. But if you have an e-reader like a, a Barnes & Noble Nook or a Kindle from Amazon, they routinely update the books you have. Now, most of the time, it's the publisher corrects spelling and typos and stuff like that, and they just update your book. But with, excuse me, these Raw Dahl books, they've gone in and wholesale changed things to make them less offensive, and you have that new book. You don't have the old book. Well, how long before they force Logos or Accordance or olive tree or any of these other Bible apps to do that. And all of a sudden you don't have access to your new American standard 77 or your 1901 American standard version or your pre 84 NIV or any, you know what the ESV or the legacy standard Bible, all of these 
digital Bibles that we, we all use every day and appreciate, you know, greatly useful things. What, what are they going to do? You know, when they change all those digital Bibles, you know, that's, that's, that's not unthinkable. We're seeing them do it with fiction because there are things in the fiction that's offensive. What's more offensive to the ungodly than the Bible? If the Bible's too offensive, do you think they won't do that? If they have the power and the control? So, have a good paper Bible. Have some key Bible and theological research books, resources, reference books. Because physical books in your library cannot be changed by a keystroke. Now, jackbooted thugs can still kick down your front door, you know, Fahrenheit 451, burn your books. You know, that can happen. But that's a lot more difficult than telling a computer AI to rifle through the internet and change all these. You know, see, because that's, that's something, they don't have to physically go to every computer. All of our computers are hooked to the internet, right? How long would it take a powerful AI to search everybody's PC that's hooked up to the internet? You know, this is a, unless you have an air-gapped computer, you know, an air-gapped computer has no wire or no and no Wi-Fi, completely cut off from the internet. Unless you have an air-gapped computer that you store all this stuff on, they can change it. Now, it's easier today than it was yesterday, and it'll be easier tomorrow than it is today. But with the growing power of AI, it could certainly reach the point where they could just tell their AI to do that. And it would have the power and the ability to do that. So physical books, make sure I have actually gone and gone back and gotten physical books of resources that I use normally on my computer. Um, I've got an exhaustive NASB concordance, huge book back here on the shelf. I've got a print copy now of Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, which is another huge book. Um, I'm making sure to buy key commentaries in print. Now, I may buy them on my Kindle too because of the convenience of being able to look them up. I may buy them on you know, accordance as well, so that I have that searchable computer record. But if they ever change it, or if they, you know, if I'm having to, you know, hide in a catacomb somewhere because Christianity's been outlawed, if I can have a few physical books with me, then I will be able to continue to faithfully preach and teach the Word of God. So have some physical books. That's the bad of AI. You know, what's the ugly? You got the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
The ugly is Terminator. The ugly is Westworld, <laughs> the original. Don't know much about the, the remake, but that original with Yul Brynner terrified me as a child. <laughs> um, you know, where the computers, you know, how <laughs> in, uh, in, in uh, um, 2001, where the computer wakes up and does bad things for your own good. You know, Terminator, you know, Skynet woke up and saw man as its enemy and tried to wipe out mankind. Um, you know, Westworld, these robots that were built for entertainment, started killing people. You know, so you have, you know, this is the ugly part of AI. You know, the robot overlords scenario. Um, and it's been, I mean, like I say, you've had, you know, movies. I used to, gosh, 20 years ago, there was a game series called Earth Siege. And Earth Siege, the whole premise of the game was you were you were driving robot fighting vehicles, you know, walking tanks sort of thing. Kind of kind of like Mech Warrior, but but it was a a different version of it. Same same basic idea. Um walking robots heavily armed walking around shooting people. Well, the bad guys in Earth Siege were the Cybrids. And the opening scenario was we created them to fight our wars and equipped them with the most powerful weapons imaginable. Man's creation became his worst nightmare. It's Terminator scenario. The Cybrids decide man's the enemy. And so the Cybrids turn on humanity and you're fighting back. And when the game starts, humanity's been almost wiped out. But you have a small military group that plans a you know the the strategic last minute strike to wipe out the artificial intelligence, and uh, so those Earth Siege, Earth Siege Two, and then Star Siege, and they were great, great games. But the the bad guys are these self aware computers that have decided mankind's the enemy. Um, the Battlestar Galactica, same thing, the, the Cylons. Now, in the original TV series, the Cylons were not created by humanity. They had a weird idea. The Cylons were created by this reptilian race called the Cylons, who created the robot Cylons, but they patterned them on humans because they had discovered in their galaxy-wide exploration that human beings were the most adaptable and, and you know, how do you come up with that? Um, but that was the premise. And so in the original TV series, Battlestar Galactica, this reptilian race called the Cylons created the robot Cylons, which then wiped out the reptilian Cylons and became their own civilization and were trying to wipe out people. Uh, in the remake of Battlestar Galactica, 
the Cylons were human-made, the robots. So, again, you have the, you know, Terminator, uh, Earth Siege, HAL 9000 scenario where human-made computers wake up and decide we're the enemies. So, that's the ugly part of AI. Um, and as, as people, you know, this is, and, and when I say it's the ugly part, I'm not saying I don't think it's possible. I'm thinking it's very possible. Because they're already talking about, I mean, right now, we've got, you know, military drones flying around that are armed. They're able to drop bombs and shoot missiles. You know, they're, they're not just, just used for spying on our enemies. They're used for attacking our enemies. Um, apparently, drones are being used quite a bit in the Ukraine war. And so you've got, you know, the drone technology that are fighting our wars. Well, right now, those drones are controlled by human pilots in control stations on Earth, and they're radio-controlled, basically. Most of them are done by satellite. I mean, it's, it's, it's impressive what they're able to do. But they're talking more and more about making these drones more and more autonomous, where they, they will have artificially intelligent computers that can control the drones so that they can just send a drone on a mission and it will carry out the mission and come back. And so, you know, we created them to fight our wars and equip them with the most powerful weapons imaginable. <laughs> um, the opening line from Earth Siege, and I just think about that, and it's just like, maybe this isn't such a good idea. You know, because how, how long before it's not just drones in the air, but it's drone tanks and drone battleships, and then drone-powered, you know, robots carrying weapons onto the battlefield. Have you seen some of the stuff that Boston Dynamics is doing with robots? I remember the very first ones, they were, you know, the, the and it wasn't that long ago that just being able to walk across the room was a huge achievement for the robotics guys at Boston Dynamics. They have two-legged bipedal robots, arms and legs, you know, approximate size and configuration of a human being that can now do like parkour free running, jumping over obstacles and, and, and all this, that, and the other thing. It's like, you know, how long before somebody gives one of those artificial intelligence and weapons? That's the ugly. And that really is something we need to consider. Another thing I want to talk to you about this morning is the popularity of the song Richmond North of Richmond. I'm not going to play it. It has some crudities in it that that uh, I, I don't need <laughs> to broadcast. Many of you have already heard the song. And I'm not going to talk about the song. I'm not going to talk about the artist. I'm going to talk about its popularity. Why has this song jumped up to be so popular 
Um, this was not done by a record company or, or marketing or anything like that. Um, this small town factory worker who writes music on the side, he's not a professional musician, said he never wanted to be one. But he wrote this song expressing his angst at the plight of the middle class, the working class, trying to get by. And the the whole premise of the song is that, you know, we're being used and abused and taken for granted and, you know, not not able to, to earn a living, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason it's caught on so much is I think it, it, it reflects a growing angst, growing, it's been growing for a while, angst in America. I go back to when I was a child, late 60s, early 70s, and America was a manufacturing giant. And you had, people would get, get a job at a factory, like a big factory, like, you know, General Motors or Chrysler or, you know, some, you know, the, uh, a steel mill, something like that. Now, the work was hard. It was hard physical labor, but it was good pay. And, you know, a guy could work a factory job buy a house, raise a family. You know, was, they used to talk about a family wage where you a, 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 man, a working man could earn enough to support a family. And that was the reality just, you know, 50, 60 years ago. That is no longer the reality and has not been for a long time. Our manufacturing jobs have gone away, and there's a lot of reasons for this. And I, I do believe that, you know, liberal policies and labor unions are a big part of the problem. Um, the Democrat Party and the United Auto Workers killed Detroit and killed the American car industry um, from what it was. I'm not saying we still don't have American cars, but it's not what it was. And it wasn't just the fact that they started using robots to manufacture stuff. It's the fact that, you know, the the labor labor unions price their product, the labor of the workers, out of the market. Things are too expensive, people don't buy it. And that was what happened. But, you know, it used to be you could you could live on what you made at General Motors or Boeing or any of these big factories. And and a lot of a lot of it, those factories are gone. You know, steel mills are gone. We talk. I, I remember back in the '80s, we were talking about the Rust Belt as all of the you know northeast steel and manufacturing plants closed down and just started rusting. And that problem has only gotten greater. And so there is an anger. And the popularity of a song like Richmond North of Richmond is feeding off that anger. And that's 
you know, why it gained in popularity. People listen to the words of that music and they're like, yeah, that's how I feel. You know, that I can't get ahead and I can't, you know, I'm just a, a wage slave, etc. And some of that resentment, I think, is legit. Um, American businesses have made decisions that were not good for America and not good for their employees. There, there was a, a lack of, we're all in this together, <laughs> to use a popular phrase from a couple of years ago, in a, using it in a more realistic concept, you know, that it is not the purpose of a business to provide jobs. But at the same time, an employer owes some loyalty to his employees beyond that monthly paycheck. And good employers really do look out for the welfare of their employees. And we know that there are businesses like that. You can find stories like that in the newspaper all the time. But at the same time, there's part of this anger that is, that is rooted in covetousness. So that we see people who look at rich people with resentment simply because they're rich. Not because of anything they've done, but simply because they're rich. And I have looked at, I, I was watching something last week, and I won't mention the name of the, the artist. Um, female musician, not Taylor Swift. <laughs> that's, a, that's as far as I'll say. And I just was flipping through a YouTube channel. I had been looking for a song and found a recent, she, you know, she uses her YouTube channel for vlogging and spreading her opinion about stuff. And it, this recent video caught my eye and she was just talking about billionaires and how much she hates billionaires and the reason she hates billionaires is if if you have and this was this is a, a paraphrase of what she said if if somebody has billions of dollars it just tells tells her that that person values themselves so much more than they value their employees and workers otherwise they would share that more equitably among their employees. And part of the problem that we have with the thought of rich people, now, we didn't have anything like modern wealth until the Industrial Revolution. You didn't have the kind of accrual of wealth you see in a, um, you know, J.D. Rockefeller or a Dale Carnegie or any of those, the, the, the quote unquote robber barons of the industrial revolution in the United States. And, you know, those, those rich people that, you know, Jacob Astor, the, you know, the, the people that could afford the best suites on the Titanic. We don't have, um, we didn't have anything like that prior to the industrial revolution. Before that, you know, you can look at European royalty and think they they had that kind of wealth, but they didn't have anything approaching the wealth and power of a J.D. Rockefeller 
or uh, you know any modern billionaire as far as personal you know i i, I you know, one thing studying history was how often the kings of england were in debt <laughs> and it wasn't just government debt it was the debt they accrued trying to maintain this lavish lifestyle to impress people that hey i'm the king i have this lavish lifestyle um that you know the 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 wealth that was generated beginning with the industrial revolution and what we look at these rich people and we think they have piles of money now let's understand something yes their monthly income is a lot higher than yours and mine their ability to spend money personally is a lot higher than yours and mine but the vast majority of their wealth isn't cash. And it's not, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it never was cash. The vast majority of their wealth is the business or businesses they own. You know, you might say, well, that guy's worth, you know, $2 billion. Well, yeah, but most of that's tied up in factories and trucks and, you know, raw materials to manufacture the widgets that he sells, whatever it is. It's not like he has pockets full of cash. And usually when a, you know, billionaire gets more money, he invests it in more manufacturing more distribution, more retail stores, which employ more people. It's not like he just tucks that money in his pocket. Um, this is one of the things I always hear about tax cuts. Oh, you're just giving tax cuts to the wealthy like that. You know, what do you think that money's going to be done? It's going to it's going to be used to help the economy. Um, and I'm not saying there aren't greedy, wealthy people. Please don't get me wrong. And I'm not saying there are people that use their wealth for nefarious purposes, such as buying elections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all know the Klaus Schwabs and the George Soroses and the the Bill Gates and, and uh, Mark Zuckerbergs and everything they're trying to do with their money. Um, and I'm still, my jury's still out on, Elon Musk, you know, um, there are wealthy people who use their wealth for nefarious purposes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the wealth itself. And while, yes, like I said, they may have big houses and they may have cars, they may have yachts and private planes. Um, but the percentage of money in their pockets even the percentage of the money they spend on themselves compared to their total worth is, you know, not what you think. I mean, you know, when, when, uh, um, Elon Musk spent what he spent $43 billion to buy Twitter, he had to sell Tesla stock to do it. It's not like he had the cash lying around. He had to sell part of his company to be able to do that. And I think he, he recruited other investors as well. It wasn't the whole $43 billion wasn't his. Um, 
so I think he's the majority shareholder. But you know, you just you just you know, I took the took the you know, it's privately privately held company. It's not traded on the market. You and I can't buy a chunk of it, but you know, he's not the only investor who owns part of Twitter, and it's not. And Twitter's not making any money, so just deal with that. Um, but most of the time, it's, you know, it's factories and stuff like that. Now, let's say, you know, a a wealthy person gets a windfall of, you know, $100 million, $200 million. Phenomenal wealth to you and I, you know. But let's say, you know, there's a tax cut and a wealthy person, you know, pockets an extra $50 million. What's he going to do with that? You know, he's probably not going to spend it on himself. Now, he may, you know, but most of the time he's going to be reinvesting it in his business, improving the manufacturing, research and development, whatever, you know. And so, I mean, that's that's beneficial to the community because it supplies jobs, it improves products, whatever. But let's say he decides, I'm going to spend this $50 million or $100 million, whatever it is, and I'm going to buy a new yacht. New yacht for me. So that I can lounge around in the Caribbean while I'm on vacation. You know, And we think, well, that's horrible. Well, no, not really. See, somebody built that yacht. So you've got shipyard owners and their employees who make money which they then spend at the local businesses in their town. They use those to pay their bills and send their kids to college, etc, etc, etc. You've got employees that have to crew that yacht who then are getting a paycheck so they can pay their bills and take care of their needs. You have you know People who provide, you know, fuel. You have mechanics. You have all these people that, you know, make money when Mr. Rich Rich Bridges buys a yacht. It happens. Okay? You know, same thing if he buys an airplane. Same thing if he buys a house. I mean, if he buys a new house, has a new house built, you know, there's somebody sells him the land. So there's somebody who makes money off their real estate. There's, you know... uh, uh, carpenters and carpet layers and concrete people and roofers and everybody that make money. And then, you know, if it's a really big house, it has to have staff and groundkeepers and stuff like that who get monthly paychecks. So you see that, that the, the wealth of most wealthy people is in stuff that benefits society. It's not in their personal frivolous expenditures. Now, like I say, if somebody's making, you know, their paychecks, you know, they're making a couple of million dollars a month in pay and cash, you know, or, or they have a couple million dollars a month left over after they pay all their bills, 
and they they spend that, you know, they, yeah, yeah, they're going to, you know, I mean, if I made that kind of money, I'd drive a Lamborghini. I'd have $1,000 suits. I'd have expensive watches and stuff like that. Not because I'm greedy and covetousness, but because I can afford them. I'd have a big house. You know, I live in a trailer in the woods. I'd have a big house. I don't know if I'd have a big ho house big enough to have staff. <laughs> I've never wanted staff. But, you know, of course, somebody that rich is going to need personal assistance and stuff to help them run their businesses. So, you know, maybe a cook would be nice. You know, you don't have to cook your own meals. You can just say, hey, what's for dinner tonight? And your, your cook, you know, hey, can we have pizza on Tuesday? And the cook makes pizza or whatever, you know, tacos. You know, those fancy foods that I eat, pizza, tacos, burgers, um, things like that. <laughs> so don't envy the wealthy. That's covetousness. Now, like I said, sometimes they do evil things with their wealth. For that, they should be condemned. For that, we should point out. You know, I don't, res I don't resent Mark Zuckerberg for being wealthy. He has built a fabulous business in Amazon. Now, are all their business practices ethical? I don't think so. Do I use Amazon's goods and services? All the time. Because... They do a good job. They deliver to me, the customer, the things that I want delivered to me in a timely manner for a decent price. You know, I'm sitting in an office chair that is an Amazon Basics office chair. And the fact of the matter is, it's one of the best office chairs I've ever had. It's sturdy. And I've had it a long time. I have worn out other office chairs. And I'm, I got this one and it's like, Wow, this one's really nice. It's comfortable, it's sturdy, it's lasting a long time, and I got it from Amazon, and I'm happy about it because Amazon provides a good product for a good price. Now, it's probably made in China. <laughs> I haven't looked, and that distresses me, but I don't, you know, it, it doesn't distress me to the point where I refuse to buy anything that isn't made in America mainly because it's hard to find stuff that's made in America because we've gotten rid of our manufacturing to a large degree. All right, we've run long today. Let's wrap this up. Let us recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the twelfth Sunday after Pentecost. Keep your church, O Lord, by your perpetual mercy. And because without you the frailty of our nature causes us to fall, keep us from all things hurtful and lead us to all things profitable for our salvation. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The Collect for the Renewal of Life O God, the King Eternal, whose light divides the day from the night and turns the shadow of death into the morning, drive far from us all wrong desires, incline our hearts to keep your law, and guide our feet into the way of peace, that having done your will with cheerfulness during the day, we may, when night comes, rejoice to give you thanks. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And the Collect for the Unrepentant. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven, given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for Monday. Sorry for going a little bit long. Hope you have a great day. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. And we'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chat. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.